0: Welcome to Inside the Banjoverse, a podcast exploring the minds of folk music's great artists. If you like what you hear, please subscribe now and do leave us a review, it makes a big difference. This is Enda Scal from Irish bluegrass crossover band We Banjo 3. Before you freak out, don't worry, there's actually four of us, and mostly just one banjo. My guest on the podcast today is a good friend of mine, Daniel Neely, resident in New York City. Daniel is a banjo player, an ethnomusicologist, and is the Irish music journalist with the Irish Echo. Listeners might be interested to know that Dan is one of a group of scholars, including Drs. Scott Spencer, Aileen Delan, and Michael O'Malley, who are working with the Irish Traditional Music Archive in Dublin and the Ward Irish Music Archives in Milwaukee, to crowdsource an online display of signed dedication pages from the books of Captain Francis O'Neill. For those who might not know, O'Neill was the police chief of Chicago at the turn of the 20th century, loved Irish music, and published several tune collections and books about musicians that remain very important documents to this day. The project's goal is to contextualise O'Neill and his work on traditional music in the larger Irish experience, and to better understand the Irish diaspora's relationship to Irish political and social movements at the turn of the century, before the 1916 uprising and through the 1921 creation of the Free State. They currently have 60 pages and are hoping for lots more before the project launches in June, as part of an international, multidisciplinary conference about Irish America, organised in Paris by the Universities of Chicago, Cain, Normandy and Paris. If you have a signed O'Neill book, it's easy to submit a photo or scan. Just visit tinyurl.com forward slash O'Neill dedications. And now, on to the podcast. Uh, It's uh, a great pleasure to be talking to my friend Daniel Neely in New York City. Uh, I know Daniel is a banjo player and as the Irish music writer or journalist for the Irish Echo. And uh, so excited to talk to you today, Dan. You're in New York City, is that right?
1: Well, uh, first of all, let me say it's a pleasure to be here with you. It's delightful. I'm 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 excited for this. Uh, <clears throat> technically, I don't live in the city. I live outside the city now. We um, we moved to uh, the county of Westchester uh, about five years ago uh, because we had uh, a second child and we wanted to stay in the neighborhood we were living in in Queens, which is a place called Sunnyside. Uh, but it came became very very expensive to live there, um, and uh, yeah. So we we found a place where we could spend less money and get more um space. So that's what we did. Good. And good. it's so we so we live in a house now and after, you know, 25 years of living in apartments, it's been delightful to have space.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Especially at this time when uh, having outside space is
1: absolutely yeah, gold, yeah. right? Yeah. Although, you know what? Um so the, we're in a suburb, and the, the interesting there's a lot of outdoor space here, but the quality of outdoor space in Sunnyside was uh, incredible. So we had, like, a, a local park there that was really, really great. Um, it was, like, you know, it was gated, so once the gate closed, um, you know, the kids could, like, run around. You wouldn't see them for, like, five hours or however long you were there, and then, you know, you'd call their name and they come back. But like, you know, there were parents, other parents, you know, and you could trust them. So like, if your kid was doing something really weird, the parent would be like, don't do that. And you'd be like, all right, thanks. Instead of, you know, whereas like around here, if you like said something to your kid, like somebody else's kid, they'd be like, what are you doing talking to my kid like that? So it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, that's, that's one of the things that, uh, the community there was really just, uh, it was just brilliant. And, um, it's the community here is great too. It's just different and sort of more spread out. Whereas like, you know, it's was really dense and you could walk everywhere in Sunnyside and. Here you kind of have to drive everywhere if you want to go, to like to the market or whatever. And sunny side, you could walk down the corner with your friend and have a pint, which you are not able to do here because it's not only can there's like there's nowhere walking distance. There really aren't that very many like bars around here. So, you know, it, it's sort of like a different way of of doing things. Yeah, you're, so it you're, has. This...
0: You're not you're not selling it to me, Dan. I got to say, it's 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 just different.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's it's nice being here as a it you know as an Irish. They're, bank- they're,
0: as an Irish banjo player, which one is better? Was Was Sunnyside an
1: Irish community? Oh, yeah. No. This, I, <laughs> so Sunnyside it was amazing because at one point, basically every piper in, in New York City lived there. So, like, Ivan Goff was my neighbor. Killian Valley was my neighbor. Uh, there was a guy named uh, Kevin McHugh who was uh, – he was a percussionist in Riverdance, but he played pipes brilliantly. He was one of my neighbors. There's – Kevin McHugh ran a session in a place called – the cuckoo's nest, which was like just a lovely pub that, which was nice for sessions. Uh, one of my neighbors is a singer named Donny Carroll, who is, you know, really he's, they call them like the the patron saint of Irish music in New York, because he can always find a gig for everybody. And he's the nicest guy and he's a great singer. And, you know, so like it, that, and, you know, you'd just find people like who'd go, like, oh, I play flute and be like, you do. Wow. Great. You know, whereas like the Irish music around here isn't uh, the, there is some around here, but in my neighborhood, but there's not a lot. But if like you go to Woodlawn in the Bronx, there's like a ton there. And the, music, the standard there is very high. Then if you drive like a half an hour away, you can get to Pearl River, which is, you know, again, like that Pearl River, everybody plays something and everybody's a brilliant musician up there. Um, so there's definitely music to be had around here. It's just like, you know, not on my street, which is in contrast to uh, what my street used to be like in Queens. Yeah. Pearl River is a very famous cultist branch uh well there there would be several cultist branches there uh I think there are two or three, but like there there are some really famous teachers like you know uh Rose Flanagan is up there and margie malva hill and and uh, uh <clears throat> um, basically if you are competing in the flaw and the flaws uh you know they the, i mean I think the flaw used to happen up there uh in, in the school- in the Pearl River high school um and then they moved it to Parsippany. But like, you know, everybody competes up there and everybody is, you know, like the Kaylee bands all come from there. Like that, like the under 12s and under 15s, like, you know, the standard is just incredible. Like, like, I guess the under 12s won like three or four years ago, but they beat everybody. And you know how, like, I mean, you know, the, the, the thing is, oh, if you go in first, nobody's ever going to listen to you. And like, you know, you want to go in sometime after the first one goes. So like people take you seriously, these kids went on, nailed it. And everyone's like, you know, they're like, see ya, we won, we're taking this. And they did. So, you know, and that's that's rubber. just the, the the teaching up there is incredible. The standard up there is incredible. And and it's, you know, it's one of those places where you're like, wow. And people take being Irish very seriously. You know, it's like a very, very Irish community. And, you know, you see it like when you're driving around. What's your
0: background, Dan? And how uh, like how how did you get into Irish music and Irish banjo specifically?
1: Well, <clears throat> so uh, ethnically, um uh there would be like english and irish and scottish and welsh uh um but like the neelys were from northern ireland and, and came over in like the late 18th century beginning of the 19th century and then my mom's irish people came from galway sometime in the 1870s um so like you know the 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 connection there is uh very distant um and then i grew up outside of boston in a town called Newton. Um, which is not particularly Irish at all, although like Boston is very, very Irish. Um, but I got into playing Irish music in graduate school. <clears throat> so I, uh, I went to New York University, and uh, my second year in, uh, Mick Maloney showed up because he was uh, named a Global Distinguished Scholar. And uh, he started a group there called the Washington Square Harp and Shamrock Orchestra. Which was a group that was uh, modeled after the Irish American dance bands of the 1920s and 1930s. So, people like, you know, uh, O'Leary's Irish Minstrels and the Dan Sullivan Shamrock Band. And, uh, you know, it's well, a lot of the bands in the United States at that point had, like, you know, sort of, oh, we're the Four Provinces Orchestra, you know, or, you know, there would be like Harp and Shamrock orchestras. And so we sort of, the Washington Square, which is where NYU is, the Washington Square Harp and Shamrock Orchestra, that's what we were. Uh, so I got into that band and I started out like playing guitar because before that I was in a, um, I was in a ska band. Uh, and I, you know, we toured the States and then when I, after I left the band, ever, the, the group went and toured Europe. Um, and it was uh, a great experience. And so anyway, I joined the Washington Square Harbour and Schermark Orchestra and they gave me a, um, well, well, you know, like I played guitar in the group and I was not suited to play guitar. I didn't, I I was on the offbeat and, you know, that's not exactly how it was supposed to be working. So um, the summer in between like the first and second years, I, uh, and I, and I did it because like, you know, we just did it. And then everybody went for a pint afterwards and it was good fun. Uh, Over the summer, I uh, had a friend who was in a punk rock band called Doc Hopper and he, um, he had bought a tender banjo on tour, a 1950s Gretsch it wasn't a good banjo, but it was like decent enough. So he, he didn't want it. He goes, Daniel, what the banjo? I was like, yeah, sure. So over that summer, I like took all the tunes that I had remembered playing and I started plucking them out. So when I got back in the fall, Mick looks at me, and goes, Dan, you found your instrument. And I was like, okay, great. Uh, so that's that's kind of how I got started with the banjo. And um, the I began just sort of in the group learning the tunes. And then I, after that, I started tentatively going to sessions. And then I became much more... Uh, uh, participatory with sessions. Uh, and then, uh, in 2000, I think it was 2005, Tim Collins from Kilfenora got a full Brighton. He was in New York for a year and, uh, I got tunes from him. And then, uh, I had conversations with him about like, you know, how to run bands, um, like a big band like that. Cause like Washington square had like 17 people. in at one point, you know, people coming in and passing through all the time and like, you know, students or whatever. So, uh, after Tim left, I kind of took over leadership of the band and sort of made it a much more, um, uh, you know, uh, it became a much more serious thing. Uh, and that's where I met Donnie Carroll. And then Donnie was like, oh, Dan, you know, oh, you live in Sunnyside, wants to read away from me. And geez, we, uh, we should start a session here. So uh, there was a bar on Sunnyside called Murphy's, and I started a session there, and that lasted nine months. And then after that, um, Donnie's like, ah, oh, it's too bad. You should start another one. And I was like, mm, I don't know. And he goes, oh, I got some friends, they opened a bar in Manhattan it's a place called Lilies. I was like, Oh, okay. So I, uh, I went and talked to the owners and then I uh, had the session at a place called Lily's that lasted for almost nine years. Um, and, uh, sort of my path, you know, just in terms of like the places I play and the musicians play, I play with sort of went through that kind of trajectory. And,
0: uh, yeah, what are the, what, what are the sessions like in America versus Ireland? Or do you, do you have much experience of the Irish session? and <clears throat> these, Are there big differences? And, you know, in, Irish, in Ireland, obviously, a lot of the sessions are professional in the sense that a number of musicians would be paid to start them and then others would come in.
1: Is it very similar or different? Well, yeah, it would be similar. I mean, <clears throat> so Lily's, uh, it was me and I'd hire another person every week, um, and I would sort of switch that person around so I like, could rotate people. And then so there would be two paid people there. And then, you know, so you'd sort of calculate that so that there's like a high level of... Um, uh, musicianship happening so that people could come and join in the session. So my, my session had, uh, 10 seats that went down to nine at one point because one of them broke, they didn't replace it, which is fine by me. Uh, and so, you know, I, it would be a thing where like, you know, if you could, if you could hang, then, you know, come have a tune. And if you couldn't hang, come sit down and have a listen. And when somebody else shows up who can like, you know, kind of swing, maybe you give up your chair. Uh, and so, um, it was, uh, that was the way my session worked. But like there are very, very high level sessions. So like, you know, if you go to 11th street, which is uh, the sort of late night Sunday session, that's like a, that's one of the big ones. That's um, Tony DeMarco session. Um, Swifts, which is a place on Tuesdays. That's uh, you know, another session that's really great that the, the leadership of that has changed over the years. And I think Killian Valley is the one running that right now, but like, you know, Killian would do it with like Matt Mancuso or Dylan Foley. Um, and that's, since COVID that's been a gig, they do it, they've been doing it outside. Um, And then I think Katie Lenane had it for a little while and she was doing it with Eamon O'Leary. And then, you know, but like, that's the session that like, you know, Kevin Crawford might show up to, or, you know, whichever lunacy people are in town or whoever, you know, all these sessions would attract sort of top professional players. Then um, like one of the great places for music on Sundays is a place called the dead rabbit, which is Killian again runs, but that's like more of a gig. But like, it's sort of like a very guarded session. So like, you know, you know, it's a four person session, but like, you know, if somebody cool shows up, you're not throwing that person out of bed, you know, Uh, so you would create space. But like, you know, it'd be like touring musicians coming through, like, you know, let's say Patty Keenan shows up. Well, you certainly make room for Patty and he'd sit down and have a tune or whatever. Frankie Gavin, you know, you might see that caliber of player show up there. So you'd have, uh, and then, you know, in New York, I mean, it used to be in New York that there were like sessions almost every night of the week. And some of them would be very, very high quality sessions. And some of them would be sort of, you know, more striving for a, for a higher level, you know, uh, but you know, it's not to say they were bad sessions because a lot of sessions, not, is not necessarily just the music. It's also the sort of friendship and camaraderie that goes with it. So they all have, you know, different layers of functionality and, 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 and quality and, you know, some of them I find very engaging, and some of them I personally don't find as engaging. Um, and you know what I find as en- engaging has changed over the course of you know years. The types of things that I'm looking for in a session. So, but you know to answer your question, uh, I would say that my experience with sessions in Ireland is is you know there are some very very high quality sessions in Ireland, even you know or at least the ones I've been to, um, and they'd be different than the ones here. The tunes are different. You know i mean you know you're going to get the same t- tunes now and again but like you know the vocabulary you know i guess like the, the what's in fashion there in any particular point is going to be sort of move very quickly and like it'll move quickly here too but like you know the upper echelon sessions it moves very quickly and sort of as you go down the line the repertory remains somewhat static um so you know, that would sort of be a difference, but also like the standard of musicianship in Ireland is very, very high. I mean, when you're growing up and like, you know, exposed to music and playing it all the time and, you know, you don't have to travel all that far to, to get to it. And, you know, maybe you have like parents or relatives who have been involved in playing it, uh, or certainly friends, uh, you know, you can develop at a sort of a different rate. Uh, whereas like, you know, here, you know, I didn't have any like traditional music in my background. Um, so like you know it's it's been very much a thing where like I'm searching it out as opposed to it sort of like surrounding me um and then you find yourself in places where it does surround you but uh I think in Ireland you know that's that would sort of be the norm or at least closer to the norm um so like you get like kind of a different standard there uh, is it is it very political the session scene in New York it sounds kind of political well yeah yeah that's that's definitely. <laughs> There, there, there are definitely grudges that are held and, uh, you know, some people just don't like other people and some people do like other people and some people are hot and cold with other people and, you know, uh, it goes through phases of being very clicky and then, you know, sometimes it's not very clicky. So it all just sort of depends on what the mixture of personality, are is. Is grudges new or old and um, so, it, but it can be very political.
0: You've explained it extremely well because, you know, we get asked very often, like, what's an Irish session like? And you can give the um, the nice kind of glossy, oh, everybody gets in the pub and they drink Guinness and they play tunes together. But on a real level, I think, and you've described Ireland every bit as much as New York, which is this very subtle, nuanced uh, undercurrents the entire time on of a political nature, personal nature, very much a metaphor. Sure for life. I mean, not everybody
1: gets on. It it absolutely (laughs) is. I mean, like, you know, a session is sort of a a microcosm of the bigger world. Like, you know, I, my son is taking fiddle lessons and I am, you know, I want him to like know how to go play in a session so he can like sort of get a better insight into how things work, you know, because what's like, once you're involved, it's, it's, you see things in a different way. I think that, that, you know, you don't necessarily would see without it, you know? And, and you're exposed, like, uh, people from all sorts of different walks of life and economic backgrounds and social backgrounds, they, everybody plays the music, you know, so you can, like, meet people that you wouldn't likely meet in other contexts and, you know, make friendships that maybe you, uh, and, like, you know, serious lifelong friendships that you maybe might not have had um, were it not for this thing that brings everybody together. Mm.
0: I, I, it was very interesting how you said that there's almost a fashionable element to what tunes are played. In certain sessions, oh, that's really
1: interesting. Yeah. yeah, Well, I mean, I I know that, you know, in in my sessions, I there if I learn a tune that I think I like, um, then I'll play it, and it might be something that I play at my session. Nobody really plays anywhere else, uh, but that would be like sort of the fashion that I do it my own thing. But if like you know, I might go to another person's session, they might have tunes that, and I don't want to say sets of tunes, but like it's like you know, no, a lot of times like you know, you might have a set of tunes that everybody plays, or you might have just, like, tunes that get played and, like, juggled around in different sets, you know. But, like, let's say for, you know, you go to another session, they have four or five different tunes that you'll hear. and It's associated with that crew of musicians. So if you want to play out those people, you learn those tunes, then, like, you know, you sort of have a better time with that session from a musical standpoint. Mm. What What do you look for in a session? Like, what, what really switches you on? Um... I like people who are easy to get along with, and I I like uh like I, I want to play with musicians who are better than me, um you know people who are who are who are strong that sort of make me, force me to up my game, um, so that's that's kind of I, I like I like a a a session that, where where like you go into the space and you feel like it's a nice place for, tunes like you know you could have the greatest musicians and like the nicest spot but if it's like in in like a brightly lit pizza place in a strip mall might be like well this doesn't really have a vibe but like you know you find like a find like a nice spot and you know and it's got some like character to it then you're like oh yeah this is a place where like i really want to go like you know so you know one place that comes to mind that wasn't you know the place that i played was if you go into boston in a place called jamaica plain there's there's a little bar called the bean and uh, they have music there on Saturdays. And it's a brilliant place to play music. I mean, the people who run the session are really great. Um, the people who show up to have tunes are just really great, nice people. The bar has, like, you know, a very wide selection of, of of micro brews. It's a small bar, and it's a little bit dark with, like, you know, a big window in the front, so, like, light comes in. So, like, it's kind of got that, like, kind of diffuse kind of feeling. The, the, people show up with their dogs. You know, it's kind of like it's a, it's a place where people go and it's, a, it feels like a place where you want to have a tune. Then when you play in the corner, like, you know, the music kind of fills it and the, like, so it's sort of like an all around experience, mm. you know, every, everything's just kind of there. And, and and so, you know, you spend your three hours there, then when you leave, you feel bad because like, Oh, that was like a nice little cocoon I was in with music and friends and, and, and pints mm. and you go home and you're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can't can't wait for next time. <laughs> Uh,
0: do you feel like a session has uh it usually has a leader like there's usually one musician or maybe two that kind of lead Uh, are you would you are you a leader or do you like to sit behind and play along with uh so lily's i
1: was the leader for the entire time um uh and i enjoyed that very much um but i i definitely like being at sessions where i don't have to worry about you know, the leadership responsibilities. Cause you know, if you're the leader, it's not, you're not just, you know, calling the tunes or whatever, like, you know, guiding the people around the circle, which can be tedious. Um, You know, you have to deal with the bartenders and you have to deal with the owner and sometimes that's a really like, you know, nice experience. And sometimes it can be like a little bit more of a headache. Although I've been fortunate where I haven't had to deal with any like really bad uh, owners or I've had to deal with a few bad bartenders. Um, But you know, (laughs) There's, I th- I, th- I think Lily's actually ended in part because of uh, there was a bartender who was stealing from the till, and then tr- and and putting those <laughs> putting the drinks on our tab. So you know somebody comes up and pays cash, she puts that drink on our tab and then pockets the money, uh, and I think you know that cut up with, well with us certainly, <laughs> but uh, uh, she eventually got caught because she I think she was stealing in front of the owner one day. So, you know, wow. but, uh, you know, occasionally you, you'll find bartenders who really don't like Irish music, uh, and then you will find bartenders who really do, and those are the bartenders who you, you know, end up really uh, enjoying and talking with and, you know, finding friendship with.
0: You're listening to Inside the Banjoverse verse with ethnomusicologist and banjo player, Daniel Neely. Yeah, I played some sessions in Dublin when I was uh, in college and it was right in the city centre and it was in some pretty hardcore pubs but the idea was that by bringing in Irish music, they would sort of gentrify the pubs a little bit and yeah. attra- attract a different clientele. Um, well, yeah. I'm not, not 100% sure that it worked, but
1: it was sessions <laughs> in funny places. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. Well, I know what you mean by that, but like, was that kind of like a more of a sessions that were geared towards tourism
0: not so much tourism no because there were local pubs but it was to try and hmm. get the really hardcore uh, inner city folks to not go to the pub because they wouldn't be as attracted to Irish music if that makes any sense oh
1: no that actually makes total sense so like when I was when I was uh this is this is a funny story when at Murphy's um, Mur- so Murphy's was like sort of a townie bar um, uh, I, you know t- it, it was a very neighborhood bar. Townie bar is the right term. It was a neighborhood bar. And um, when we first started there, they had one very small window in the front, and it was very dark inside, and there was like a neon light in the front window. And so like when we show up, they'd have to like move the pool table, you know, kind of place. Um, and everybody at the bar was hostile towards the Irish music. I mean, it was incredible. Like, uh, it's just incredibly hostile. And they had a jukebox, and they would much rather be listening to the jukebox. So, uh, you know, and i mean i'm sure this is like a gendered thing so uh i was i had to not be there one day because i was at a conference out of town so my wife and one of the uh she plays flute and one of the other members of the washington square harp and shamrock took over the leadership session the duties that day and <laughs> her name was liz her name is liz uh so liz and gail are playing away and then somebody from the bar. Oh, and by the way, this is a bar with a pillow. So like when, you know, you can drink too much, you fall forward, they can slip the pillow in before your head hits the bar. Uh, so, uh, um, uh, so Liz playing away, Liz and Gil playing away. Somebody walks up and they're wasted and they say something like, you know, you should really, we don't like your music. You should take your music and practice at home because we don't want to hear it. And Liz, who is very, uh, you know, she's smart and like doesn't take crap off anybody. She goes, well, you know what? Maybe you should drink at home. So when you pass out, you fall down closer to your bed, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and so like, but like that kind of hostility would, you know, there, there, there were some client, some, you know, neighborhood clientele that was really, you know, like did not like. Uh, traditional music that changed by the way when murphy's eventually renovated their space and put a windows and made it really a much nicer place and so they'd have traditional music there and you know uh, the the sort of neighborhood vibe that had existed before sort of disappeared and they were much more successful like a lot more people came to the bar and you know enjoyed the music and, and you know just had a good time and people came from out of like i knew people from new jersey who would come to the bar just to like you know hang out for the night and listen to music and see what you know what was going on there. It was a nice spot, and it was small, and like you know, it was felt very hospitable to music at that point, and people enjoyed it. I mean, it makes a big difference if people enjoy it, you know, because mm. if people are just there like being grumpy at you, it sucks. So, uh, <laughs>
0: I I I started this session in Dublin. This is over twenty years ago when I was in college. I, just,
1: I don't believe. What are you? Twenty nine? Were you nine years old then? I was nine years Come old. On. Yeah,
0: yeah. And uh, so I went into this pub uh and i asked the lady who owned the pub if she'd like an irish music session so mm-hmm. to kind of fast forward a little bit through the story she used to own an off license uh, so a, just a little store that sold drink yeah mm-hmm. and she knew this guy that had a pub and they were chatting one day and she said i would all i always wanted to own a pub and he said why don't we swap <laughs> Right. <laughs> so <laughs> this is she's like the definition of a little old deer she takes Mm -hmm. over this pretty hardcore uh, inner city pub and the guy that had the pub goes up and is just selling off off sales. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she loved the idea of Irish music. And because I was from the country, I was from Galway and she was like, Oh, this lovely country boy wants to play music in my pub. And so I started a session with Dara Bracken and, and, and Mick Broderick. Now, what was hysterical about the story is that as as time went on, the session got really big. A lot of people that came to the session realized that this lady didn't know anything about running a pub. Uh, and this was before the smoking ban. So they used to come into the pub and smoke grass and hash <laughs> in the pub. And she had no idea. Absolutely no clue. Right. And so the session was huge. The pub was full Full of hardshaws. And she was like, Isn't this amazing? Like the Irish music and people just love it. And everybody's so relaxed. And I'm like, Yes, they are. And one night the guard <laughs> the police raided the pub. And they came in Oops. the back the back door, right? And it was just, you know, people were diving out the door and all the rest of it. And when I went in the following week to start, you know, I I'd go in early for a pint before we'd start. And she was like, "Sure." Hi. And did you know anything about these drugs and i was like not a thing i have no idea what you're talking about and she said <laughs> she said the the, the brought me into the station and they burned some of it for me so that i'd know what it smelled like and i could know when the people were sm- were smoking it the next time <laughs> so she used to come down to the back of the pub where the session was and stand there sniffing the air to see <laughs> if
1: and she still couldn't <laughs> tell the difference <laughs> <laughs> Um, wow, but it was now you know now here here's the new wrinkle here's the new wrinkle. A lot of places in the United States, it's legal. Recreational marijuana is legal. Like you know, in Massachusetts, you can just walk into a shop, buy marijuana, and walk out with no fear of 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 uh, you know being arrested or mm. harassment. It's weird. It's crazy. They they, they just they just passed uh, they just legalized it in New Jersey. And uh, because New York is going to lose all their, lose a lot in tax money, I'm sure New York is going to legalize. Uh, I mean, they'd be stupid not to do it by the end of the year. But um, yeah, we we, so we, that'll...
0: we noticed when we go to gigs in California where it's obviously been legal for a while, and oh, yeah. th- these ladies would turn up at the show with like pearl necklaces and stuff, like you know, very yeah. conservative looking ladies. And when they'd meet you after the show, they'd have. A little Tupperware box, and they'd open it up, and they go, "We made you some cookies."
1: And the bang off the cookies, <laughs> I'm like, "You people look like my mother." <laughs> that's that's the funny. That's the funniest part too. My right? uh, so so my mom wanted me to take her to to a store just to see what it was like, uh, and we got in, and everybody was over like 65 in the store. Like there were no kids, no young people. It was just like all like you know older people. And I was like, "Wow." Wow! Um, (laughs) And you go in and like you have a conversation. What are you looking for? Well, you know, um, what do you recommend? It's like going going to a wine store and talking this, or a restaurant and talking to the sommelier. You know, like, well, what are you into? What are you having for dinner tonight? I don't know, some sort of fish. (laughs) You know, it's 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 a new world, and it's a new world indeed.
0: I, I want to roll back to when you got your first banjo from a punk rocker. Yeah. How did that, what did that look like? I mean, you picked it up for the first time and you're like, what the heck is this? Did you go Did you go for lessons? Was there a resource that you went to to figure out how to tune it <coughs> play it? What,
1: what were you supposed to be doing? I think I must have looked on the internet to figure out how to tune it. Um, and that wasn't a problem. But like, you know, I, I just started learning from Mick uh, Maloney. Like, you know, we'd just go into the Washington Square. We'd rehearse every week and I just like watch what he did. And then like every now and again, like, you know, I'd corner him and he'd like, you know, show me some tunes and then I'd play for him. He'd be like, no, no, that's not what you want to do with your left hand or no, no, that's not what you're going to do with your right hand. Why are you playing it like that kind of stuff? Uh, And so, you know, based on the things that he would say, I sort of, um, you know, uh, learned to play and learned about Irish music very early on from him was he was he very technique oriented or, or was it more rounded uh no it'd be more rounded i mean he, he i would say like his approach to to teaching me the it wasn't like a specific you know you're sitting down and i'm going to be your teacher kind of thing it was sort of old-fashioned in the sense that like you know it would he'd look at you and be like no no no, no. you know it was it was I mean, I, it was mostly me watching him and trying to figure out what he was doing because there would be things, you know. As I got a better ear for it, there were I noticed things that he did in his playing that I was like, "Wow, that's really cool!" Like, you know, like he played jigs, and I'd be like, "Wow, that's like the way he's doing is great" because he could, you know, like he'd put in double stops and kind of throw them in wherever they sounded great. And you know, to from a technical point of view, it'd be on me like, "Well, how do I figure out?" You know, because you know, if you're if you're picking in a particular way, and I want to put like a double stop on the let's say on the one, the three, the four and the six, or I want to put one on the one, the four and the six, or the one, the three and the six or whatever, in like a, you know, a measured jigs, you know, well, how do I do that? So like technically I can make that happen. And it was, you know, it was a long time for me to figure that out. And, um, so I learned a lot from, like, watching Mac. And then, like, there are people around who I picked up stuff. From. Like, there's a Eamon O'Leary with somebody who I like watching early on. And Don Mead, if you know Don Mead at all, like, I enjoyed his banjo playing. And then um, <clears throat> at one point, uh, I, I had sort of, like, a big sort of technical spurt forward uh, because, um, uh, well, uh, back in Sunnyside, there was a, a Sunday session um, at a place called Maggie Mays on Queens Boulevard. And it was uh the, the it was Ivan Goff who led it with a guitar player named Dave Fahi, and uh and and it was great. Um, uh, so do you know Dave at all?
0: Oh, I grew up with Dave. Literally, he's a mile over the road. From oh, Dave. did you?
1: Yeah. Oh, did you? Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I I played I, love... I played my first sessions with Dave, and he bought me my first vodka when I was fifteen.
1: <laughs> that's 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 really not surprising at all. <laughs> I, I I think I think I think so highly like Dave is just like a fun person to to have a, a tune with, but you do not want to go out drinking with him because that will hurt <laughs> the next few days. Um, but he's he's a great guy. So anyway, he, like they had this session and it was and it was a lot of fun. Uh, and then one day Ivan calls me and he goes, "Dan, you got to come down uh, because my friend uh, John is in from Australia, and I don't know if he's ever going to come back. So you definitely want to hear this guy play." And so this was John Morrow and um john is a john is a bonkers banjo player like he's really really he, great he's the most i reckon he's the most unknown
0: banjo player of his quality he's phenomenal phenomenal he player. really is
1: he really and it's and it's and it's not just like you know i mean you can play the melody and whatever and throw in the double stops where you want to but he'd throw him like he'd accompany himself with like these sort of like fourth string and third string runs while he's playing the melody, which is like, you know, I mean, that's something that's very sophisticated as far as I'm concerned, but, and he wouldn't, it wouldn't sound flashy. It would just sound very workmanlike, if you know what I mean? You know, like it was flash, but like he, at no point was it like, Hey, look how awesome and what I'm doing. It was just like, he's, he's just playing and it just like the creativity and like the flow is, and he wasn't playing anything you know the same way twice so uh so I would like look at and try to figure out what John was doing and then for uh for 5 years I ran the um uh the Irish music week uh in Elkins West Virginia the Augusta Irish Music Week and so I had John uh, down there once uh to teach and so like I I gave him a lift down and back and so I was able to like talk to him like in great depth about like you know really his right hand technique and you know how he you know held his pick and like the kinds of things that he did and how he imagined doing it. Cause you know, like, like you can, you can, like, I think, you know, you probably have had this experience as well. Like you, you reach a point where like, you have like the vocabulary of like the possibility of things that can happen. And then sometimes like, you need somebody to tell you like sort of the big picture to sort of organize it. And that's, you know, for me, that's uh, in a way, what happened with that, those car rides with John. Cause um, like, I had some technical stuff like going around in my head and like, you know, I could sort of tame it now and again, but like, I talked to him and he was based on like the types of things he says and how he approached i was like oh so i'm sort of approaching this in a way if i adjust this this way and if i adjust that that way then i could be more efficient in my right hand and sort of not have to think about it so much so that like i can do different stuff in my left hand and that was sort of like a uh, an important um an important thing for me uh from a technical point of view Mm. but um yeah it's uh I didn't really sit down with anybody and, like, you know, uh, have like sort of continuous lessons. I mean, in a way, you know, it, it was graduate school for me. So <clears throat> the playing music was a little bit of an escape. So I, I mean, I wrote my dissertation about um, a traditional music in Jamaica called Mento.
0: Hi, this is the beginning of Sally Brown, Creole lady of Johnningtown less until she was 21 trying our new silk brown skirt and so
1: uh, you know I was she living really in Jamaica for a while and I would travel down there regularly and then like you know writing a dissertation is like having a big you know weight around your neck and so like when you're not writing you sort of like move away and go do other things and find like the pleasure in that and that was what the music stuff was for me so like you know I could go and sit down and enjoy myself with some music and and not have to think about like the academic work that I needed to finish. So at at the very beginning, it was like, you know, I was really Picking up like the vocabulary and like ideas about how technique works and 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 like how to play tunes and all this and that, but it wasn't like coming together in a particular way. And then I'd have like I was saying it just a second ago, like there would be moments where like I, there would be like a like a light would go off and things would happen, and Then another light would go off and then things would happen, and, and that's sort of how it uh, it it worked with me.
0: Is there any banjo in Jamaican mento music?
1: Yes, banjo is a central instrument in 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 in, uh, in mento music. <clears throat> um, it probably came in to Memento to, to in the 20s. Um, and, you know, people still play it now. They tune in fifths, generally speaking, mm-hmm. although there are some musicians who I don't necessarily rate as highly, and some of my other banjo-playing friends in Jamaica would not have rated highly, who tune it, what they call uke, which is the top four strings of the guitar, um, which I think is cheating. I mean, why not just play guitar and then forget about it if you have a six-string banjo? I mean, come on, what are, you, what are we doing here? You know? <laughs> uh, but... There were, some, there were some virtuoso banjo players in Jamaica. There was a guy who recorded in the 50s who's, uh, who went by the name Pork Chops. Uh, he was a brilliant banjo player. Uh, there was another one in Montego Bay who I was good friends with named Motherless. His real name is Cecil Mitchell, but apparently he was out playing music all the time That is that people used to say, Where, don't you even have a mother? So he became Motherless. Uh, um, I had a friend named Nelson who was a great banjo player, Nelson Chambers um but yeah there's there are a lot of banjo well there used to be a lot of banjo players in jamaica now you don't really find so many but um yeah now there's still some there's still some bands around like the jolly boys are still around even though they've had a like i i I recorded with the the band the jolly boys for their album uh i played banjo on their album called great expectation and um when i left because i i wasn't going to go on tour because henry was just being born uh uh there were a couple people who played banjo after me. And then like one of them, whose name is Brutus, he uh, he's the banjo player now. And he's, he's very, very good. Very good. I mean, he was a great, great guitarist and he's like, become a really great banjo player. So, you know, people still do it. It's just not as calm as it used to be. And is it melody
0: based like Irish music or is it more chordal based?
1: Both. I mean, like you'll you'll play, you'll play chords, but then like people will take solos or people will, you know, play the melody when it's appropriate. Then there would be, you know, if you are, I mean, depending on where you play, because like they're kind of different styles in different parts of the island. But um, like if you're playing on the North Coast, especially for tourism, you've kind of you play a particular kind of style, but in in that style, you're gonna need to know like, you know, there there would be a common language of like introductions and like, you know, closing segments in a in a tune or like, you know, particular kinds of there's be particular repertory and there would be like, you know, solo breaks that you know you probably people would probably understand um and be able to hear and you know you'd be like oh i know where this is going based on what you just played so um yeah
0: have you ever had any interest in um in 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 plectrum banjo uh, jazz banjo tenor banjo not so much (laughs) in a
1: word (laughs) nope nope <laughs> i mean that would just be like you know i pick that up and then like i'm gonna have to get like six more banjos i mean come on <laughs> i only have i mean i do live in a house but like like i'm like i'm kind of out of space when it comes to like banjo space <laughs> like if i put if, if i put another banjo in there, wife is gonna kill me and i've got one, two, one, two, three heat three in this room there are two downstairs you know i mean Jeez, they're just, they're growing out of the place.
0: So, well, let's talk banjo a little bit then. What's your yes? What's your favorite one that you have right now? <laughs> and have you any idea if you had an endless supply of money, what you would buy?
1: Oh, I love this question. This is great. Um, well, I have thoughts, as you might imagine. <laughs> uh, the banjo that I play all the time is one I I fashioned myself out of parts. Um, it is basically a uh, is a tube and plate Gibson model. Uh, the way that came together was I was on the Banjo Hangout website many, many years ago. This was probably 12, 13 years ago. And somebody was selling a 1929 TB3 neck and a modern gill resonator for $300. And I was like, wow, that's very cheap. I want to buy those things. And they were like stained to match each other. So like you, you didn't have to put any money. To it. And then it was just a matter of like buying the parts. Now at that point, I had some sort of like Vega-esque Banjo. And I, but, and I said to myself, you know, I don't really have very much money, so I'm going to try to build this banjo as cheaply as I can, which meant at the time, uh, not having a tone ring in it. Now there was on the band, on the band. Well, no, you laugh. So on the banjo hangout that they, they, like, there were some people who were talking about like woody banjos. And so like, there was a, there's a, there's a rim maker in Arkansas named Tony Pass. And he was doing the rims for like Stelling banjos and people and, like, there was like a little fashion for those rims. So he had introduced like their block, their block rims are not bent rims. Um, so like I guess that sort of like cuts out a lot of the labor that goes into making the rims because you don't have to steam bend them. So uh, he put out sort of like a budget version of his rim, and it wasn't too much money. And so I asked him to like make me one, and then cut it as an arch top. So like it's just a single solid piece of well, it's a block rim, but like the 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 arch top is just a Gibson style arch top is cut into the rim. And that took three and a half pounds off the weight of the banjo too. So that's what I play. Um, and then a little while ago, maybe three or four years ago, I replaced the neck because the, 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 the truss rod like kind of froze. So I was like, well, you know, and also I wanted, that's a 23 inch scale neck and I wanted a 22 inch 19 fret. Uh, Cause I like the slightly shorter scale. Like, I don't like a short scale or like a 21 or 20, which would be like, you know, you'd find on some 17. I want something that was sort of in between. And as I found out later, the 20-inch 19, I mean, the 22-inch the 19 fret was Wayman standard. Because uh, there's a, well, I'll tell the story in a sec. So anyway, that, that, that sort of Gibson banjo is the one I like play all the time. It's got, it's loud, it's got like a nice tone and it's very light. So I enjoy that. <clears throat> uh, I also have a Neckville, which has a 22-inch scale. Um, and I think that's a brilliant instrument too. Um, it is really, I mean, you can do a lot with a neck fill, just in terms of like manipulating the tone and the action and, uh, they're, they're beautifully made instruments. Um, so I've had, I had one of those for like, you know, six or seven years and it's like, you know, it's like a, like a, that's a great top shelf instrument. And then the recent, uh, the recent, uh, banjo I got was a, uh, it's a Wayman number three um so i was at Catskills irish arts week and i don't you know dan shingler um dan shingler he's a uh, he shows up and he he had a he had a like a wayman number 1 and he passes it to me and i'm like holy shit this banjo is amazing and i hadn't given waymans a lot of thought previously because they're not really like the most common banjos and they're also kind of pricey you know like for for like they're not cheap they're not super expensive they're sort of in that like you know middle ground where you really have to commit to it if you're going to buy one. Uh, So anyway, I played Dan's and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. So I found like a number three, which has like the extended fretboard and uh, you know, it was in rough shape and I actually had Dan um, uh, work on it. Like, you know, make, bring it up to like spec and Dan is unbelievably talented when it comes to like you know banjo restoration so he got the banjo like you know looking beautiful playing beautiful sounding beautiful and so that's that's the other banjo i have i have a uh i also have a an epiphone um that i don't really like that much um it's uh it's one of the ones with the mother of toilet seat fretboards you know it's like the recording model but Mm -hmm. uh, and i picked that up because it was being sold in, in yonkers for like you know very little money as far as Epiphones go. So I said, well, you know, take a fly around and see how that goes. Um, but I, you know, I'm not, it's, I'm not really so in love with it. It's very heavy. And uh, I feel like the neck is a little bit long. You know, it's mm-hmm. not where, like, I like my fingers to be. So. But uh, if I, if I were to put, if I were to put something, if I had unlimited resources, uh, uh, I would probably do something that's a little bit like the TB3 I have. Um, but, uh, I, I, I'd, I'd want it to be like sort of a new build and I'd, I'd be really picky about like the woods, you know, I'd want something that looks nice. I'd be really picky about the finish cause I want the finish to like, you know, look nice. Um, but like, you know, I mean, how much, you know, how much sort of customization can you put into it? It's, it's not like you're buying a fiddle where you're going to spend like $150,000 and then that's before the bow, uh, you know, um. Mm. So would, well, you a, would you have a preference for wood? I like maple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's got nice pop. And uh, ginger, but the the rim on, on on the the Tony pass rim is birch, as opposed to maple, because I guess you know for whatever reason birch is less brash than but still bright in comparison to uh, like a maple block rim, which supposedly is very thin and brash sounding. <laughs>
0: You're listening to Inside the Banjo-Verse with ethnomusicologist and banjo player, Daniel Neely. So, I mean, yeah. I, I, I had a neck full made for me and when it started, it's gorgeous. and I wanted yeah. a completely black banjo because I was so sick of gold and yeah. nickel and mother toilet seat and all of the flashy yeah, yeah. stuff and uh, when it came to doing the, the inlay on the neck, uh, Tom <laughs> sent me a message. He goes, what do you want on the inlay? And I said, I, I don't really care. And he said, I have some turquoise. And I was like, "Ooh, I really like turquoise. And so <laughs> by accident, I ended up with what looks like a very flashy banjo because it is almost uh, we, we stained all well the, the little bit of wood that's in the neck for the banjos in the neck and in the posh. That's all stained black. And it's got a black uh, fretboard, but then you have this really cool turquoise inlay. So it's yeah, yeah. it's kind of blingy in its own right.
1: I discovered yeah. it ter- turns out
0: I I do like a bit of bling.
1: Yeah, I, I like a little bit of bling too. You know, like it's 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 a little a little goes a long way. You know, you don't want it to like you know be too blingy, but you know some some tasteful bling is uh, you know it's nice. Now I believe your banjo, your Tom Custom banjo, has your name at the the, the twenty at the nineteenth fret. Mm-hmm. is your name laid there like that's that's a that's a nice touch you know it's a little bit blingy but it's also like a nice touch it's a nice touch
0: yeah well my my neck fill has es on the on the headstock oh
1: no, i haven't taken that close look at it, really. in
0: in mother of pearl and it's uh, really nice
1: no it does. It's, <laughs> it's very nice see to <laughs> me to me probably what i would do like i probably want to put like my my approach to that would be like to put it on the back of the headstock so I can kind of like look over it and be like, hey, that's, that's my banjo right there. <laughs> well, the, yep. the, the, the neck on mine is
0: so long that it's always sticking out in front of me anyway. So I get to see oh, it all the true, time. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that, uh, and you 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 talked about it, when I got the neck fill and I realized that I can adjust every single aspect of the banjo in
1: minutes. In, yeah, it takes no time either. You can change a head without taking the strings off. I mean, that's it In my something. mind, yeah. My mind. That was that was that was a different. That's a game changer. Yeah. Because, so when like I travel with I've traveled with the Neckville. So like when I when I went to the I was in one of the Kaylee. Well, two years I was in a Kaylee band that went to the the final, and then um, <clears throat> um, then I went to Cuba at one point with Mick and the Greenfields, uh, and um, I took the the banjo there, and it, you know it was very reliable just in terms of like a a travel banjo because it's like it, like again, there's not like th- there are a lot of parts like, and you can do stuff, but there aren't that many parts. Like there's like compared to a no- like a normal banjo, there are no hooks, no nuts, you know, it's just like the pot. I mean, the only, if you're going to travel with it, the only thing you really need is a Allen wrench and maybe like the, the, the adjustment uh, wrenches, Yeah, but mostly just the Allen, you know, I had that stuff on me once.
0: Yeah. You need the head wrenches. If, uh, if you're going to do altitude, because yeah. uh, at altitude it goes tight as a drum, yeah, and you, yeah, yeah. and it loses all its tone. But well, is you have
1: a natural? You have a skin on yours, right?
0: It's not natural skin; it's it's synthetic.
1: Oh, it's, oh, really? Yeah, oh.
0: It's, it's a Renaissance head, and then it's stained with varnish to give it a kind of a sexy skin. Oh, look. Oh, yeah. gotcha! More bling. There's there's
1: there's a guy I know in Jamaica who does like the goat skins and like he he makes he makes gourd banjos, um, but he uh, he he sells like the 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 goat skins to like makers and stuff. I think mostly old time people get them, but I thought that I for a second I was like, oh I wonder if he's got if he's got a Jamaican skin in his head. You know? Uh, would be very bubbles that, that burst.
0: Yeah, I've never played a a natural skin band uh, skin head banjo.
1: I would be very curious to see what it sounds like. There well so I had uh so the first band well the first real banjo I ever got was a was a bacon super and uh, I don't really like bacon banjos that much. Uh, And I especially don't like the silver bells because they're very deep. And so like, like my arm has to like go out all the way and like, you know, it's, it's hurt your shoulder after a while. I mean, they sound nice, but like, I also find them like they, they're good for like jazz, but they don't really, well. the ones I've played haven't really cut at sessions in the way that I want them to. Uh, But I had a bacon super for a while. And the bacon super was actually, I think for Irish music, better than the the silver bell. Um, But when I went to Jamaica the first time uh, and was there for the year, I brought my, that banjo and it had a a natural skin on it because you know i just bought it like a couple years before whatever and it was fine and uh the humidity in jamaica really messed with the head um but then i was out at a in a place called moko playing it playing at a nine night which is like when somebody dies it's like awake and like goes all night and so uh at one of the things like you know around midnight before they start singing um they'll like the food comes out. So they'll give like mannish water, which is like a goat and trail soup. And um like they'll give uh white rum out. And so like the musicians will get like, you know, all that stuff first. So um normally what happens is like you get like, you know, they pass around the the the, the white rum, which comes in a bottle, and then they pass around a jug of water to like top it off and then you can drink off that. Uh well at this particular night, night they passed around the, the white rum and then they passed around a jug, which I thought was water and I poured it in, but was actually something called John Crobati, which is a, uh, which is like, it's like moonshine, but Jamaican moonshine, but it's, you know, like sort of comes out of the rum factories uh, and it's illegal, I, I think, but it's, it's, you know, it's whenever you get John Crobati be like, you know, somebody like sneaking you some or like, you know, but I've got a big jug of it. Here's a 20 ounce, you know, soda bottle full of it. It'll last you a month, two months, you know, and it really did. I mean, it's like dangerous stuff. Anyway, I pour John Crobati into my white rum. I drink it down, and I, I was not prepared for the strength, so I coughed it up all over my the skin head, and by the end of the night there was like a hole had developed in the head, and <laughs> it was it was terrible. So like I had to like in Jamaica I had to like find somebody in the states who would like send send me a head. I think I had to like you know arrange for it to be sent to my wife, and she sent it down. But I was I had a out of commission for like a month. To the pain in the butt, um, but like you know, that was my last experience with the skin head where I was like, you know, this is too much hassle. Like, you know, it's if it's too humid, it just sags, and then like, you know, I don't want to deal with that. Give me, mm. give me like a nice plastic head, yeah. And then I, I, I like the five star heads, like the plain white five star heads. I think they're very nice, yeah. I like think little,
0: they're definitely the best quality, yeah. Yeah, I don't think uh,
1: Remo are making heads anymore. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, I've heard that too that, that like they don't make it. I know Dan has been trying to like get his hands on as many as he can because like, you know, he likes them as well. Um but yeah, I, I'm not sure who, I, I don't think anybody's making them right now, but I you know, like I like them more than like, you know, like the sort of cloudy white heads and I don't like the fiber skin heads at all. Um and Renaissance can be good, but like, you know, given the choice between like the Renaissance or the Five Star, I'd go Five Star every time. Mm. Just because I am like, comfortable with the sound. Very good uh how did the irish echo come around so uh <clears throat> when i was uh running lilies well when i was running murphy's um i would send an email to everybody i knew saying hey there's a session come on down and i would try to make it funny so this is like 2008 um because like you know there's nothing worse than going to a session and being the only person there <laughs> so so uh <laughs> it's, it's a lot it's a lot of work you know you got to be the one man band and like, you know, so the banjo jokes start flying and you're like, okay, well, this is not fun. Thanks. <laughs> uh, thanks. I hate it. Uh, so I would send out an email and, you know, people would come. And then when Lilies happened, I continued that tradition of sending out emails every week and they became like very, like I would do a lot of writing. Like, cause at that point I had finished my dissertation, but I still had like the, like the, I'm writing all the time energy. So I would just like, you know, like there'd be like, just, pages long email been telling weird stories and like trying to be funny and just going on and on and on and on and on and on, and on. so <clears throat> at that time the person who was writing for the echo was a guy named earl hitchner and earl hitchner is like you know he was like one of the big you know he's sort of like a legacy in, in, in new york irish you know, like he was you know like it's a, a big big wheel and then when he left the echo there was nobody then um I think a woman named Liz Noonan took over. Like she was writing a little bit in the thing now Liz was the producer for the Keelna Nagale radio show on WFUV, which is like, you know, Sunday's WFUV, which is Fordham college. They do all the Irish music playing and they have like two very like widely listened to radio shows. Um, <clears throat> so Liz goes, Oh, I like your uh, Lily's emails, Dan. Do you think you'd ever want to write for the echo? Cause you know, like I, they need somebody to write about traditional music, and I get. I said I thought about it for a minute. I was like, "Yeah, sure." So this is 2012. Um, so I like you know they asked me, and I said, "Yeah, sure, let's do it." And uh, I started writing for them on a weekly basis, and uh, you know it's been great. It's really it's a really interesting thing because you know you you uh, you like the, the sort of scope of my column is pretty narrow. Like I, I like I'm supposed to be writing about you know traditional Irish music, and sometimes I push the boundaries in various ways. But, uh, you know, you get to know who's out there, um, the people, who you know, I mean, it's, you know, I, mean, I hear about a lot of things that are happening, and, like, I hear most of the records that are coming out at any particular time, and, you know, you sort of, be, you get to the point where you sort of understand who some musicians are and, like, you know, why they're important and why, you know, there are different projects and what binds them together, uh, and, and it's, 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 I mean, you know, it puts you in a position, particular kind of position when you want to be playing the music. Um, but generally speaking, it's like, you know, I, am able to separate the, the two things out from one another, but it's a different mode of writing than like, you know, academic writing, like up until the echo, like all, everything I wrote was, you know, like academic. So, you know, uh, I, I mean, I've published things about Jamaican, Traditional music, or just music in Jamaica in general, in like you know academic books and journals and stuff. Um, I had a sort of a famous article about the history and aesthetics uh, related to ice cream truck music that that, that <laughs> Oxford University put in one of their books. Uh, uh, and then, but like when you're writing a sort of a weekly, when you have to produce something every week for for uh, you know publication uh it limits some of the things you're able to do and you know and it's a particular mode of 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 writing that that um you know you can kind of get good at it's
0: a it's a small community the irish music community do you find that uh you know you you get an album that you really really don't like or you think is a terrible album you know do you do you, do you just avoid reviewing something like that or do you feel it's too small a community to go you know what i think this guy could have done a lot better
1: um so i tend if i don't like something i'm not going to write about it because i don't i just don't want to waste my time i don't have like that much that many hours in the week and i'm not interested in going out and picking fights with people uh and a lot of times you know if you are if you if it's that bad if it's a bad album uh you know the person who did it has put their heart and soul into it. And like, you know, I, I don't think it's like my place to really, I mean, it probably should be my place, but it, I I don't want to like crush somebody's hopes and dreams because like of one person's opinion, I, I just will tend not to write about something if I don't like it. Um You know, this being said, uh I mean, I have shared my opinions on, on things uh, outside of the, of the echo fold. And that can be, can have its own dangers because like you said this the the uh the community is reasonably small so if you say something that word can kind of spread uh quickly and you know you don't necessarily have to put it on the paper Mm -hmm. you know so
0: so what's next for daniel neely uh i assume coming out of the pandemic uh sessions are going to open up again but academically anything in pipeline uh, writing wise anything coming down the tracks
1: yes so uh last the last time i uh was in jamaica was last february and i went to a um a, a museum launch uh a show because it was like a reggae museum launch and they talk and and it was done by these uh folks out of france and it had been done in france first and then done it in brazil then it was done they brought it to kingston finally um and uh they, they, they had mento as sort of like an early part of the exhibit and I I didn't really like the uh, representation and like I've been you know, like I mean I've been in the world of mento music for like you know 22 years now or whatever um, and <clears throat> the, generally speaking when you talk to like people who write about Jamaican music people are focused on ska or rock City or reggae or dance hall and like mento is generally an afterthought and there aren't too many people I think who do it we think about it in a way that I think is like, well, you know, that takes into account the hopes, dreams, and expectations of the people who actually play the music. Usually it's record collectors talking about it. And like, you know, there's only, a, there's a, definitely a limited amount of data you can get off of a record. So, you know, in my work in Jamaica, I would like, you know, go interview pl- people, go play music with them, you know, like figure out what things meant. Um, why was this record important? Why was this song important? How come you changed the lyrics this on that sort of thing? Uh, and that none of this was reflected in, in in this thing. So I came home and I said, you know what, it's finally, because I wrote my dissertation about it, I go, you know, I, it's finally time for me to write something. I don't want to write something that is too academic, but I want it to be informed with an academic, by an academic sensibility, but make it accessible to sort of lay people. So I thought to myself, I will write a short book on Manto, a good top down look at what it's all about, and then make it so that you could sell it at the airport in the airports in Jamaica and you know I had all my stuff set up, I was going through stuff and then pandemic hits, and then I'm home teaching uh making sure the kids do their school and so that project was put on the extreme back burner <clears throat> um so the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to work on that um, and that is uh yeah, that's, that's, that's the next thing.
0: That sounds like an exciting project.
1: The, 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 the other thing that I've, I've been very uh, sort of passionate about in my, in my academic world is uh, the history of Irish music in Boston from about 1890 to about 1930. And I've uh, taken uh, a, a, a strange, a, a obsessive interest in the Dan Sullivan Shamrock Band mm. and in a singer and piper named Sean O'Nolan uh, Sean O'Nolan was uh, not a great piper, but he was an entertainer, He made a lot of records for Columbia. And he was the, um, he was the sort of mentor for the McNulty family. But a lot of the songs that, you know, people sing now and claim are traditional songs were actually written by Sean, like, you know, the Col Cannon song.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, did you
1: that's him he wrote a song called the boys of the county Talk, cork which is uh, well known but like there there would be uh, Dan McCann that's another sort of uh, one of his songs that were definitely composed by him um, and I just think he's interesting you know he would entertain a one man show he would any. Early on he sort of stole a shtick from Patsy Toohey because, you know, it would be like a piper and a dancer, but he'd like tell jokes, do recitations, play pipes, tell stories. At one point he was showing like he would do gigs and like show films or or do like act out things like there would be like little skits during his things. I you know, just and this and in nineteen twenty six, I think it was, he was the first (laughs) Irish music musician to do a cruise to Ireland. (laughs) It might have been nineteen twenty eight. But I, you know, like he was just like forward thinking, which I thought was great. The other guy, Dan Sullivan. Dan Sullivan, first of all, uh, he was from Boston. His name is Dan. He led a band, the type of band that the Washington Square Harp and Chamber Orchestra was modeled after. In 1920, he moved to my town. He was buried a five minute walk. Him and his father were buried a five minute walk from where I went to nursery school. The bus, as I learned later on. He died in 1948 so he's you know out of the picture but the bus t- that i took to school drove by one of the houses that he lived in, in. and then the dan sullivan band recorded a, a tune a version of the siege of venice polka called neely's march and uh you know all these coincidences were like wow wow jesus i can't not uh i can't not uh you know investigate this but dan's band was uh he, he had a couple really great bands like mike hannafin was his fiddle player at one point and he was great and You know, uh, there's, and there's a lot of history that is not accessible, but like you can find it if you kind of dig for it. And I just became very, uh, you know, infatuated with sort of like Dan and his story. And so I get the, the thing I, 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 at some point will plan to do also sort of write something that is, uh, takes all that into account. Like Dan's father was also named Dan and, uh, Francis O'Neill talks about him sort of extensively in Minstrels and Musicians. Um, you know, uh. One of the, the, Dan had a banjo player in his band called Neil Nolan, who was sort of one of the early Irish music banjo players. Um, I also really, and I, you and I have talked about this before, but I really love the Flanagan brothers and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Mike Flanagan. So i you know, take more than just a casual interest in knowing the history of like the Flanagan brothers and sort of where they were. And as fate would have it, I, uh, when I was living in Sunnyside, I lived on 48th street and Mike and Joe for a long time lived on the other side of 48th street. Yeah. Just across queens boulevard um because sunnyside and woodside were sort of like a hub of irish music back in the back in the day like if you if you do you know like the early recordings that um uh ellen burn dewitt put out of um Hannah, uh wheeler and um uh uh herborn and wheeler eddie herborn yep. and, and that's right yeah like they, they those musicians were like she found them in Woodside or Sunnyside, but like there used to be like an athletic ground there, and, and and that's where they were playing. So like you know there's that sort of area in New York was very has been historically very music rich in terms of Irish music. So
0: yeah, I got to meet the Flanagan family uh, last year. It was twenty twenty, maybe twenty nineteen actually, uh, on tour, and they all they all came up to Albany to a gig in Albany. And that, that, they, that's, that's where
1: they, that's where they live. Yeah, yeah. Eileen. They brought
0: Mike's banjo because uh, Mike's banjo was in Frankie Gavin's house, and I know, I remember. I went to a party in Frankie Gavin's house a long time ago, and he brought out the banjo, and it was in terrible
1: condition. Uh, I know. I I, I, in in twenty sixteen, they did the they had like the blue plaque, I guess ceremony outside of the ancestral um, house in Waterford. So I went. Mick Maloney and I. Mick brought me to that. And, and Frankie and Bobby Gardner played outside, and Frankie had, uh, oh I'm forgetting the name of the uh, the banjo players with him. Um, oh shame on me. Anyway, uh, he he was playing the banjo, and I asked if I could you know have a whack at it. and I, I couldn't like it was hard to play. Like it was really, really hard to play. Mm. Um, and then somehow, uh, the family got the banjo back and so uh Eileen Pasquini who's uh uh mike's i think it's granddaughter um uh asked me who to take it to and so i gave her um there was there's a really great shop in elkins west virginia and the and the and the guys there specialize in early high end vegas and they uh redid the banjo and made it so that it's a beautiful easy playing banjo now mm. but they still have the banjo up there uh, yeah. and I'm sure did you, did you play it after it had been restored?
0: Yeah, I got to play one of Fergal's Tune A Day tunes with it that night. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. Really, really nice. Yeah, it, it yeah. really is. Yeah. Yeah. It was very special yeah. to play it and have his, like his daughter was there and, you know, the entire family here. There's a there's a bunch yeah. of them they all came to
1: the gig and they loved it. Oh yeah. No, that's that's there there's there are tons of them.
0: You're listening to Inside the Banjo Verse with ethnomusicologist and banjo player Daniel Neely.
1: You know what the really cool thing about like the, the Mike's banjo is? <clears throat> this is a this is a little detail. Um, so when they took the banjo apart, they were sending me pictures of like the restoration process. And so it was a, it's a it's a Vega with a tuba phone tone ring, so they took the tuba thing off. Now underneath the the tone ring, it doesn't sit on the wood like as you would expect the tuba phone to. Mike had nailed in little brads all around the rim, so like the 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 the, the tone ring itself was sitting on top of just like you know the, these like a, these 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 nails, just like a tiny bit of space just to give it, you know, whatever lift he thought it would give it. So it gives the banjo kind of its own particular sound, I suppose. And then um, he'd written his name, like, on the t- very top of the wood of the rim, which I thought was, like, a really, really cool thing. That's awesome. But, like, you know, it, it, it just goes to show you, like, you know, Barney McKenna's Paragon doesn't have a Paragon tone ring in it. I've played that banjo, and it's got, like, you know, some uh, – it's, it, it's like a Gibson archtop, but it isn't made by Gibson. I, I Somebody told me, I think it was a Japanese – knockoff gibson tone ring but it's 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 uh it's you know banjo players do all sorts of weird things to like the to, you know, <laughs> once they get underneath the rim <laughs> underneath the hood you know i promise
0: you i'm never going to nail anything into a banjo i stuck velcro onto the back of mine once and that apparently was I don't, abhorrent was, that,
1: was was, was that so you could have your uh, your your big pad? I remember when I first met you, you had your the orthope- the big pad. Thing. The orth- orthopedic yeah. banjo wedge,
0: yeah. I don't need that yeah. anymore because I have a long neck now. And that just pushes it out instead with my left ah, hand. Oh, there you go. That's that was good. just adapting to playing standing up from having playing, played sitting down for so many years. And suddenly the angle was all wrong. That right. Was, that's what that was for, yeah. But the Velcro was, was frowned upon a lot.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I mean, like, you, you're going to
0: take your finish off,
1: you know. It like turns that? out it, it,
0: it comes off fairly easily. Actually, it wasn't a problem Doesn't at all.
1: It? Yeah, no, yeah. yeah, that's cool, man. That's 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 a uh, That's know. nice. I, I like that. Yeah, that is good to know. I don't know. I, I don't think that I've put any kind of weird shit on my banjo. Oh. Oh well, you, the I, uh, you know, you got to be careful with your tuner at the top of the headstock because, like, you know, it's they can scuff up the top of your headstock pretty badly.
0: I'm very hard on instruments. I. Once it, once it plays and feels really nice, I'm not overly concerned about dents and scratches and stuff. I'm like, I, I, these things it's, polish it's, out.
1: yeah, there was a time, there was a time in my, in my youth where I was like very precious with like my instruments. I'm like, no, no, I can't, I can't, don't even look at it. Don't, don't. Uh, and then like when I was in the ska band, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go tour, but I should have like a shitty guitar. So like, you know, if it gets broken or stolen, I could just replace it on tour and I'm not like, you know, out thousand dollars. So once I figured out, like, you know, I had a $400 Epiphone Sheraton and I was like, you know, banging it around and like not caring I'm like, ah, oh, whatever. And I was like, this is way more fun because you know, like, <laughs> I could just like, you know, not have to worry about it. Wow. That's liberating. So I, uh, at this point, you know, I, I, I don't, if I, let's put it this way, if it's a special banjo, I'm not going to take it out. Mm. You know, I'll just play it at home and like, you know, put it away or the way, I'm not going to take out to the sessions because that's so you know it's it's an old it's an old thing and i don't want to you know yeah it's lived this long
0: yeah i don't have a banjo like that i have my epiphone which well, you is got, beautiful oh, yeah. for stage and and that's why i got it made but i i, yeah, I understand that i know mandolin players that have like the lloyd lord that never leaves their temperature controlled room and yeah you know could you really you know attempt to bring a quarter of a million dollar mandolin on tour i don't think so but I don't think such a banjo exists, so I'm safe. Don't need to worry about it.
1: Well, I mean, you know, if, if Earl played it, you know, if Earl Scruggs breathed on it, you might be able to get, like, a, you know, a few bucks off it.
0: He would have probably looked at it and said, it's missing a string and it's tuned all the wrong trauma. and I don't know what to do with this.
1: <laughs> you know, there, but there there's some, there's some like, you know, there's some expensive, like, there's those Epiphone's that have the little dragon ch- carved into it. Mm-hmm. Those are expensive. And then, like, the... Isn't there, like, all ebony... Bacon that people think is like the greatest thing since sliced bread. I've never heard. The of a... the, 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 the yeah, it's the ne plus ultra. <laughs> but they're 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 all they're totally ebony construction. You know, gold plated everything. There, there's black banjo. You know, it's beautiful wood. It's got you know little heel carvings. You know, like the like top 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 level approach to like you know craftsmanship. But uh, you know is that banjo going to sound better than mine? I don't
0: know. Mm. Well,
1: that's a complete toss I mean, up and you ne- you never know yeah.
0: until you pick it up and play it.
1: That's the thing. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. But I think that like, you know, once you like once you find instruments it's this is this is the way they said it said to me one time. Cuz like I can play instruments and they just don't speak to me. But every now and again, I'll play an instrument and it's like talking at me very loudly and that's the one I want, you mm-hmm. know. Um cuz, you know, I mean, a lot of it comes there's, there's a lot of, like, I would say, like, a lot of your music comes out of your, your hands, you know, like, your music is who you are. So like, if you go from instrument to instrument to instrument, you're not really going to sound a whole lot different. You know, like, you know, Earl Scruggs, you could play like a toy banjo and still sound like Earl Scruggs, you know, but like, at some point, you get to the band, you know, when you're in a position where you can kind of pick and choose the the nuances, then, you know, that's when you get into some of the instruments and like you know some instruments will just speak to you in particular ways and some won't
0: yeah i think it's part of the development as a musician that at different times you want different things as a teenager i had an epiphone that was louder than you know a jet engine and that was awesome because that's what you want to be you're 15 in the middle of the session <laughs> you're drowning everybody out and now i want <laughs> something that when i was 15 i would have hated this neck it's round toned it doesn't have a very sharp edge to it it's not particularly mm. loud Uh, and i adore it now but it was a learning curve it Mm -hmm. took me three years to really really fall in love with it and i love it more when i play what would be considered your standard irish banjo and then i go back Mm -hmm. to the epiphone and i go oh my god there's so much resonance and depth and warmth to this it's much more express expressive and that's why i like it so much yeah Yeah.
1: it 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 is weird like you know to, to, to 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 think about because you know, my taste in banjos has definitely changed over the years and, you know, like the kinds of things that you sound that you want. And then there's like, you know, we talked about fashions earlier. I think there are fashions when it comes to like banjo sounds. Like, you know, when I was over at the uh, the flaw in 2016 and 2017, I noticed that there were a lot of young players who played. I can't. Uh, is it Emerald Banjos? Mm-hmm. Is that the company? Like, I found them to be very loud and very, very, like, focused. So much so that like they were hard to listen to in a way, right? And it could have been the player, players, but like, but, and it, it, and it probably is mostly the setup, you know, but like there's, there's like a very sharp setup that like, I, I'm not that interested in, but like, it was very, very, and it could still be very fashionable. And somebody came along and told me it was like the particular kind of strings they were using. So like, they're like the, like the Daria makes these wrapped strings. And, you know, like that had some bearing on like the, 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 the sharpness of the tone. Uh, yeah, I think strings will make a subtle
0: difference, but I don't think they make a huge difference. But definitely yeah. a lot of those banjos are set up to be really sharp and really loud. And they have very, very, yeah. very, very tight heads. And, you know, even the the tone ring and the pot and the whole lot of so that they're really loud.
1: Yeah. But, no, and that, there seems like that's a fashion. And I, I would imagine like, you know, I, well like a, i think a banjo like an emerald banjo is you know sophisticated enough so that when that fashion kind of changes those banjos will be able to sort of uh be set up to sound or whatever um but yeah i mean you know it's interesting and like you know the vintage market changes from now i think everybody was very interested in epiphones for a while um now people don't seem as interested in epiphones although they're like great banjos. just you're
0: just you're on the wrong facebook groups dan <laughs>
1: <laughs> really oh it's, people as, are, people are... it's as obsessive <laughs> as ever Epi... oh is it <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. well, well I, I got i got an epiphone banjo i'm looking to get rid of it so <laughs> well, that's the place to
0: go epiphone owners on facebook man they're uh, absolutely oh, obsessed yeah. yeah listen we, oh, could, yeah, we yeah. could we could we could talk banjo all day but uh then we we would become the cliched banjo player that was uh, single and living alone somewhere because eventually uh, oh, we I know, have yeah. to go back to the real world. So listen, Dan, it's been a pleasure, a pleasure chatting to you, and I look forward to the oh. e- the end of the pandemic. We can go back on tour and meet up in New York. And
1: uh, I know. Of a I'd love like to. I'd love to get back to Ireland. We we were supposed to go visit last uh, summer and we had to cancel. So maybe things sort of loosen up this summer. We'll see how it goes. With, you know.
0: Well, since you were here last, uh, or the, the last time we met in Ireland, I've got much, much better at fishing. So while I won't guarantee <laughs> it, I, our chances of
1: catching something will be better this time, I promise that. <laughs> That's great. No, because I was, you know, well, uh, y- you talked up the salmon. So, you know, the, how it was going to be so good and tasty. And, I, you know, now I'm kind of like, man, it would have been really cool to get some <laughs> salmon. Yeah.
0: Well, salmon fishing in Ireland is, is fantastic. Uh, but yeah, it's yeah. it's just all down to the weather and the right time, so it's uh, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll
2: figure it out.
0: out next time. Thanks, Dan. All right. Thank you for listening. If you loved this episode, please head over to our website, webanjo dot to subscribe, rate, and do leave us a review. It makes a huge difference. See you next time. Inside.